Hey friends, a quick note before the episode. This was recorded back in June. Right after I recorded this episode, I realized that my old style of production was not sustainable due to my changed circumstances with the pandemic. I also realized I needed more training to make quality content. I was not happy with the production quality. I am a Capricorn and a perfectionist. That's what I've been doing, learning audacity and becoming a better producer so I can create content I enjoy that I'm not ashamed to release. Please enjoy this discussion about an artificial night between myself, KJ, and Diana from both 113 days ago or seven years, depending on how you're experiencing time at the moment. Hi, friends. I'm Renee. I'm Diana. And I'm KJ. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Welcome back to our ongoing reread of the October Day series by, Mich- by Shanae McGuire. Today we're going to be talking about the third book in the series, An Artificial Night. But first, we're going to talk about our good things and the media that we've been consuming. Diana, why don't you go first with your one good thing? My one good thing is I'm at full vaccine efficacy. I have passed my two weeks since the second dose. I'm still being pretty cautious about the stuff that I'm doing. So like I'm kind of I'm still kind of avoiding like eating indoors, which is easy now that it's summer and like being in places in public unmasked. But I'm really excited that I can go get together with my friends who are also vaccinated and, you know, have board game nights or just feel better about being in public, even masked. Very excited for that. And it also means that I can see uh, my family members who haven't seen in over a year and a half that's my one good thing i love science well kj what about you what is your one good thing yeah so mine is kind of related i've been fully vaccinated for a bit longer and so i've been sort of slowly moving into other things and doing actually going out and doing things again yesterday i went to a showing of in the heights at uh, oracle park which is where the san francisco giants play so going out to see a movie with a friend is something I haven't done in quite a while. Uh, I think the last movie I saw that was not, you know, watching it on a screen in my house was Little Women in, I think it was January of 2020. I appreciate how, particularly in San Francisco, there's been this new embracing of outdoor events, which is a thing I haven't seen as much um, in before, particularly outdoor dining. Most of the time I've lived in San Francisco, there's been almost nowhere where you could sit and eat outside uh, because it's too cold at night most of the year. And there's also just not the space. But at the beginning of the pandemic, once outdoor dining became allowed, uh, the city of San Francisco gave business is a lot more licensed to turn sidewalks and parking spaces into outdoor dining. For a while it was through, I think, this June, they were going to be allowed to have the spaces. And now they have been told that this change can be permanent, that they can apply to have these park- these former parking spaces turn into permanent outdoor dining spaces. And I think that's great because it's just really nice to sit outside and eat, especially if there are heat lamps uh, above you and making it warm enough. I like this change and I hope it continues. And there's new California is looking at relaxing its uh, liquor laws to allow more outdoor uh, alcoholic beverage service, which would also be really helpful in terms of promoting outdoor dining. Well, my uh, item is only tangentially related to pandemic stuff. It is an online concert because obviously we're not having offline concerts yet. 
BTS is having their yearly muster, which is basically a concert with like extra chatting with the members. This year, the muster is called uh, Muster Suju, which is the Korean word for microcosmos, uh, which is a song from Map of the Soul Persona. I am not sure this is accurate, but there was some talk going around on Twitter that this was the song that they performed in front of members of ARMY before the pandemic hit. This was the last song that they performed. And that's like crying hours. Um, There are two concerts on Sunday morning and Monday morning, uh, my time. I probably should not have done it, but I got tickets to both concerts. That means I will be getting up at 4 a.m. two days in a row to watch an online concert and cry a lot. They've been really good at doing online events. I really feel like people missed an opportunity to do like massive online concerts. I just wish that more people had embraced online concerts. You can do it. It's possible. The technology exists (laughs) and it makes it accessible for people who, like me, hello, find actual in-person concerts a little bit overwhelming and exhausting. I think part of the challenge with online concerts has been um, actually for the on the performance end, unless you are a solo performer or you can otherwise be in the same room with your other counterparts, it is very, very difficult to sync up live musical performance over the broadcast internet. You can do pre-recorded stuff pretty easily, but live performance when the performers are in different places is very technologically difficult. Oh, yeah, for sure. I And I didn't mean that. I meant like people, groups that were together that chose to spend like the pandemic together, which obviously BTS did. But I'm still very excited about the concert. Considering that I have more than once see the, seen the same band three times in four days or thereabouts, I do not judge you're buying the multiple tickets at all. I was reasonable because they had, they had, if you were a member of like the army fan club, I'm not actually a member of the army fan club. You could buy like multi-view tickets. So not only would you have like the main screen, you would have different cameras to look at. I don't need every, I don't need to see every single movement you make. (laughs) That's not the goal here. Next up is Media Consumed, the media that we have been slamming into our eyeballs in the past few weeks. KJ, what uh, is on your list? It would not be intellectually honest for me to start with anything other than the Critical Role Campaign 2 finale. It was a seven and a half hour marathon gaming session that the Critical Role cast put on there. You know, I, I know of home games and have been in home games that have gone on that long in a stretch, but having a what feels like a live stream to go on that long is pretty epic. But uh, I won't go into too much detail because... I'm sure there are people out there listening who haven't had a chance to watch the seven and a half hour episode yet, because <laughs> that's a lot. Keeping up with Critical Role is a challenge on a normal week. It was exciting. It was fun. It was sad in all the right ways. It was an effective wrap up to uh, the last their last three years of gaming. There's some nice contrasts with the campaign one finale. So it was kind of interesting to see it go in a different way. 
It's one of the things I love about Critical Role is watching these stories develop from the beginning to the end in sort of an organic way. I mean, obviously, Matt Mercer, the Dungeon Master, has a plan, but it's a plan with a lot of room for his players to take it in different directions and do things he would never have expected. And he's very good at rolling with it. So it's just sort of amazing to watch these creators work together to create a thing. And it's a combination of planned and improv. Um, And then, of course, there's the additional mixture of the the dice outcomes, uh, sometimes not making things happen the way that anybody would have planned them. And there was a couple of those, uh, not not so much in the actual finale, but in the lead up, the second to last episode, the final boss fight had a couple of moments like that, that were pretty amazing. (laughs) And I'm also, uh, they've announced that they are taking a break from the main group, and they're bringing in a new dungeon master to lead a mini eight week campaign. That's also really exciting to get to see some new players and especially to get to see a new dungeon master develop this world in a new way and to see where they go with that. That's really exciting. And then I also wanted to mention, I feel like this is related in a way, even though maybe the relation is tenuous. It's the Apple Plus TV uh, series Mythic Quest, which is about halfway through its second season right now. I hadn't really heard of Mythic Quest until relatively recently. I have some friends who get together on Discord to watch TV every Tuesday night. And typically I haven't joined them, but they were watching the second season of Mythic Quest and I we looked into it. It sounded intriguing, so we decided to marathon the first season to catch up in time to watch the second season with our friends. It's not really speculative fiction, but it's sort of speculative fiction adjacent. It's a workplace comedy about an MMO company, a company that's making an MMO called Mythic Quest. It's the, you know, the creatives and the engineers and the evil marketing guy played by Danny Pudi, uh, which is really amazing to see him in a very different kind of role. Created by some of the same folks who created it. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I've never watched, but I gather from fans of that show that it has in some ways a similar energy. It's a fun workplace comedy with some really great characters. Ashley Birch is also in it, who some of you may be familiar with as Aloy, uh, the voice of Aloy in Horizon Zero Dawn. She plays a video game tester who has a massive crush on one of her coworkers, and that's really cute. We've not quite caught up to the second season because my this friend group likes to watch it in bursts. So we will probably finish up the second season once it's done in a couple of weeks. It's definitely a lot of fun. They actually, to go back to some an earlier subject, they filmed an entire episode in quarantine where everybody was at home recording on their own equipment. They set it up as if it was all, the whole episode was Zoom calls. Uh, and it felt very true to sort of early pandemic workplace. Um, I think it was released in May of last year. And it just it was so spot on representation of what it was like to be working in the early days of the pandemic. Even if you don't know the rest of the show, um, there's no real spoilers for the rest of the show. So you can always if you were just checking wanted to check out the energy of the show, that's a good a good option. Um, they've actually continued to film semi in quarantine because one of the actors on the show is F. Murray Abraham, who is 80 years old. He did not want to come to set, understandably. So his character has continued to work from home also. And he's always on the show, not just recording the show, but the character is in the show as a face on a video screen. And it's all been done very well. That's my other my other recommendation or my other thing that I've been watching. I feel like Diana's net topic is pretty obvious, but maybe that's just me because I know Diana. The main one since last time we recorded was Mass Effect Legendary Edition. So this dropped last month in the middle of May, and I literally played the entire trilogy in 15 days. 
it was not good the amount of time that I put in, but it was so much fun and I don't regret it. Mass Effect is a space opera video game put out by Bioware. The first game was originally released in 2007 and it played like it was released from 2007. It like the controls from the first Mass Effect game were notoriously not great, especially compared with the later trilogy. So the remaster just updates everything, unifies a lot of the controls across the game. It makes the game so much prettier, especially that first game. Like it's so noticeable how much better Mass Effect 1 looks. Yeah, you save the galaxy and I ended up recreating one of my favorite because I've played the game multiple times on PS3. Joking, not joking. It's what got me through writing my thesis in grad school was just playing Mass Effect incessantly during my downtime. And I recreated one of my favorite Shepherds and it was great. I cried. I laughed. I cursed out evil Martin Sheen. I have been so tempted to make a new shepherd but i've been resisting but i think if i do i might finally buckle down and play dude shep even though the voice acting quality is so much worse than jennifer hale i've heard mark mirror is like a really nice dude like in person but i just i do not like his voice acting for dude shep it's just so blech but I want to romance Tally really bad. So yeah, that was the main thing that I was doing throughout the month of May. It was great. I'm very excited for the next game. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's out there. It's coming. Hopefully we'll get Dragon Age 4 before it, though. <laughs> so that was the first media thing. And then the second thing is I have been playing Stardew Valley recently, and I like listening to things while I'm playing it. And I've started getting back into this podcast will kill you. This podcast will kill you is an epidemiology podcast. It started in late 2017 or early 2018. And it's hosted by two epidemiologists, uh, Aaron and Aaron. I cannot remember their last names right now, but they're the Aarons. Each episode, they talk about a different disease. Sometimes they'll talk about poisons where they'll do a crossover episode with In Defense of Plants. I really enjoy it because they talk about not only what the disease does, but also goes into the history of the disease. It talks about what's currently going on. And they also try and really focus on how diseases will affect different populations based on poverty, racism. They take a more holistic focus, which I appreciate. For certain episodes, they'll bring in experts in the disease or what's going on. And then throughout the pandemic, they've been doing this series called Anatomy of a Pandemic, where they'll focus on different aspects of COVID health disparities, the vaccine development, that type of thing. I know we're in a plague year and I know not everyone might be me and really interested in epidemiology and that type of thing. But if you are, I highly recommend it. One thing that I love about it is that they post their sources on their website. So if you're interested in any of the topics that they cover, you can always go to their website and it includes a mix of books and journal articles and they also do quarantinis and placeboritas for every episode. If you want like a good list of both alcoholic and non-alcoholic fun drinks that you can make for people, you can go to their website. And I do I do really like that they've put in an effort to because initially they didn't have the placeboritas. So someone pointed out like, hey, you might want to include a non-alcoholic version as well. And so they've been doing that, which for folks who don't drink alcohol for whatever reason, I hope you check those out because some of them do look absolutely delicious. Like there's one with like 
watermelon and mint that like I need to buy some fresh watermelon to make. That is a very thorough podcast. My stuff is much more not shallow. That's not the right term. Uh, BTS released a new song called Butter, and then they released a bunch of remixes of the same song. I have been listening to Butter on repeat, but not on loop. Not on loop, to be clear. If I loop it, I loop it on my phone, which is not connected to any streaming service because there are streaming rules. I do not want to get like hammered by people going, don't loop the song, Renee. I'm not, I promise. And with Butter, they released the instrumental version as well, which is actually pretty, pretty chill. It's good for like if you have a lo-fi playlist that you use when writing. Actually, the instrumental version is pretty good. And then they released the Hotter remix. It has more synth in it. And I, and I liked it okay. The cooler version came out and it has a lot more like punk guitar sound to it. And I'm not super crazy about that one. And the sweeter version came out at the same time as the cooler version. And it has a very, very cool, relaxing chorus. So I really like the sweeter remix the best. And I'm sure people are sick of hearing me talk about it. Sorry. Are you though? I mean, I'm a little, like, I feel a little bad. Like, people are like, I'm, like, I know when I'm talking about it, people are like, oh, is she ever going to shut up about this song? The answer to that is no. I wanted to just enjoy the song. And then the music industry was like, you know what? No, we're going to shame you at every opportunity. So I'm never going to shut up about it. So I'm sorry. So I also listened to other music. And one of my uh, SFF friends, The G, released new music recently. The song he released is called Wanderers. He collaborated with somebody called Michelle B. He is a synthwave artist. He makes like very... I don't even know how to describe it because like I said, I'm not a music person. It feels like electronic, but chill. The Wanderers track has like really great vocals and it's really, really pretty. I'm not actually sure when he got into music. I think I bought one of his al- his albums called Zuma Beach a few years ago. And so I've been following his music development. When he first started, his sound was like pretty, it was like pretty simple. It was like really chill, lo-fi stuff. But as he's grown as an artist, like his sound has gotten a lot deeper and richer. I really like his new stuff, which I didn't actually know existed. He has this whole other album out that I didn't even know was a thing. Bandcamp did not tell me about it. And I'm like, Bandcamp, you're fired. <laughs> I haven't listened to the whole thing yet. Um, I don't want to listen to this new song he just dropped, but I will probably get around to his other album, which is called Cosmopolis. Right now, those are my two song recommendations. Butter, if you're going to stream it, please don't loop it. That's against the rules. Don't loop the song. And Wanderers by The G and Michelle B. And they're both available on Spotify. That's my media. Sorry that I'm kind of boring. Music recs are important. And it's summer, too. And summer is when I used to do a lot of my music listening as a kid. For me, it's kind of like recapturing some of that happiness. Because the summers for me were like a mixed bag. Because like I was alone a lot. I didn't have siblings. I didn't have a lot of friends who lived near me or friends at all. Music was kind of like a way that I connected with other people who were using words and ideas. I'm not actually surprised that since it's summer and it's warm, I'm leaning back into that feeling. I really like that feeling. The longer that I'm into music, the more aware I am of how much I actually missed it. Thanks for giving me music back, pandemic. Uh, you did one thing. <laughs> you did one good thing. Friends, if there has been something that you have loved a whole lot, we would love to hear about it. You can hit us up on Twitter or via email.
An Artificial Night is the third book in the October Day Urban Fantasy series by Shanae McGuire. On this blood and body horror adventure, Faye's children have gone missing, Toby's death omen, named May, shows up to eat takeout and flout traffic safety rules, and between all the bleeding, Toby manages to kickstart a not-so-subtle contest for her romantic affections. There was a lot happening in this book. That there was. Like, my summary does not encompass everything. So where do we even want to start? Let's start with May. Just because I love a cheery death omen. In this book, we meet Toby's fetch, May. Mayday, which, great name. (laughs) And basically, uh, fetch is a very rare appearance. They appear when a hero's about to die, and they're supposed to kick the hero's butt into getting their affairs in order. Unfortunately for Toby... It also sets her off on a semi-suicidal path of heroism because Toby is very depressed and is like, well, might just die then. I love how different she is right off the bat from Toby. So she's very cheerful. She has a very different fashion style. At one point, they describe her wearing like a green peasant shirt and a ladies knitting and terrorism society t-shirt at the same time and that the colors are clashing and everything. May is just this kind of breath of fresh air for me just because like she's someone who is very joyful and like you don't always get that with the people Toby surrounds herself with. So one of the plot points in this book that kind of kickstarts everything is Stacy and Mitch's kids, two of the younger ones, get kidnapped and a third one, Karen, falls asleep and doesn't wake up. And so Toby has to go find them. And we find out that Karen is an a neuromancer. Or- I think that's how you say it. Basically, she can see the future past. She's a dream seer. Nowhere in any of her lineages was anyone expecting this. And so my question is, what is your true heritage, Stacey? What we're told is that she's a bear, like a quarter bear white. But I don't know. I don't believe it. I think she's lying. When her heritage is mentioned, it's like, oh, she's very thin. But Toby never says, oh, I tasted it in her blood or anything like that. Or I could taste it like she does with other people. I don't know. I think Stacey's hiding something. It is interesting that I don't think we ever have seen, and we should keep an eye out for this, because I remember in the first book, you were adamant that Stacy's heritage was never even mentioned. They do mention it finally. I forgot that they had mentioned it briefly here. I think uh, at the very beginning of the second book, it comes up also. But what I don't remember is if we've ever actually seen Stacy do magic. No, we haven't. That's when Toby most often is likely to talk about tasting someone's heritage is when she can smell their magic. Because Stacy doesn't ever work magic in front of Toby, that is sort of the, the the in-universe reason why we don't know. And remind me, doesn't Cassandra come up with some fairly strong magical powers later? Yeah, she's also a seer. I'm checking the wiki, and we never get what her magic smells like. So Cassandra's is grapefruit and turpentine. Karen is cottonwood and quince. So we don't ever get Mitch's magic smell either also another thing which i don't know if it's a clue or not but i felt it was very like there was a lot of emphasis put on it over and over again and that is toby going oh stacy's only 
like a quarter fae. She's very weak. She looks old. She looks older than us. And when the kids get taken, Toby's like, wow, this has aged her. While the emphasis, because so far, as far as I can tell, Toby hasn't done that to any other of the people that are weaker. She doesn't comment on how they age. I don't have the entire series in front of me, but I don't remember her ever doing something similar to Marsha, who we also know is a very thin-blooded changeling. I know we've talked about, like, maybe Maeve is Marsha, but, like, what if Stacy has some ties to Maeve? Because some- there was someone on Tumblr pointing out that one of Maeve's specialties is seeing the future, and Stacy has two kids who are seers, so... I feel like what happened with Maeve and Titania is going to be coming out soon, and I have my eye on both Stacy and Marcia. The other thing I want to mention is I forgot this book is where the fissures really start between Toby and Luna. So one of the things that comes out in this book is that Luna is the daughter of Blind Michael, who's the firstborn who's been stealing the children, and Acacia, his wife, who is a plant fae. We find out that Luna had been born in blind michael's lands and had escaped by essentially stealing the skin of a dying kitsune and essentially taking the skin like a selkie takes a skin luna at various points sacrifices toby to keep herself safe i forgot that this was kind of where those fissures started where luna prioritizes her own safety and her own well-being over that of the woman who is is basically her second daughter I did not forget that. I remembered that the rift with Luna was coming very soon when I was reading the earlier books. So you can tell that that relationship is fraught very early on. I mostly remembered this rift happening in book four where, spoiler, Raceline poisons the roses. And in order to save Luna, they have to get rid of the Kitsune skin. I remember that as being one of the main turning points in their relationship, but I haven't read this book since 2012, so I'd forgotten the Luna sacrifices Toby to save herself component. So, I mean, I've only read through the series once. This is my second time through, and I have never been able to like get a good read on Luna's character. And like even in this reread, I'm just like, I don't trust you. I don't like you that much. I don't think you seem that nice. <laughs> When I was first getting into the series, a lot of people, I was reading a lot of commentary, like, people seem to like Luna a lot. And I'm just like, what am I missing? Because I don't like this lady at all. Like, I'm not a fan. Not a fan of Luna Torquil at all. And I'm not sure if that's like, it's not on purpose. I'm like, am I supposed to dislike her because of the way that she treats Toby? The way that she lets her daughter treat Toby? What are the haps? What's going on? (laughs) Is it me? No, it's not just you. Luna reads to me as somebody who has dealt with a massive amount of trauma and is possibly not handling it very well. Fairy needs therapists a lot and doesn't have them. But, you know, Luna escaped basically an abusive family life. She had to essentially murder somebody to do it. She has been living under an assu- essentially an assumed identity. And uh, as a result, she had a, a daughter who was very. Unfortunately, it it seems like just the fact that she hid her identity has been a problem for Raceline. I got the the sense from this that Sylvester does actually know Luna's story and where she came from, from some of the things that he said to her and about her during this book. 
Um, so I got the vague sense that Sylvester does in fact know, but probably nobody else does. So she's been hiding this terrible secret. And then, you know, there was the whole thing about being, you know, she and Raceline were held captive for many years, which was yet another trauma on top of all that. So Luna is probably dealing with a lot of unresolved traumatic experiences. That doesn't excuse her willingness to sacrifice Toby and her willingness to hide the truth about a lot of things. But it does make me a little more understanding of why she would do it. But I, I mean, I agree. I'm not the greatest fan of her either. So the other thing I want to mention with regards to Luna Torquil is I had stumbled across some really interesting meta, like just kind of just talking about her relationship with Toby and how it broke down. And one thing they mention is like a part of the reason Luna has such a face heel turn is that Luna has constructed her understanding of the world that she is a victim, that she is a good person, that that, you know, she's earned her happy ending. And so when she sacrifices Toby, but Toby comes back, and then they take away the skin that she's been using to hide herself, she either has to accept like, hey, I did do these bad things. I did try and sacrifice this woman who saw me as a mother figure. I maybe didn't help my daughter, like my blood daughter, the way that I could have helped her by letting her know what was going on with her heritage. No, it's all Toby's fault because I am a good person and I did nothing wrong. And so she's trying to blame Toby and have Toby see herself as the villain or the antagonist in this scenario. And Toby, like as the series goes on, Toby has a better sense of self and has more people that she relies on to be like, no, this is fucked up, Toby. Like, this is not a good thing. So Toby doesn't put herself in the position that Luna wants her in. I suspect this will become more obvious in the next book, but there's a little bit of it here. The way that Luna treats Toby in this book and the way that Toby Atlee doesn't really react like she thinks she deserves it is like a good lead in to discuss how depressed Toby is in this book. This book is like, if you can't get fresh suicidal ideation, store-bought is fine. <laughs> that is the vibe that I got from this book. And the Lushak calls her out on it. And Connor is like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, all the people around Toby that care about her are like, what are you doing? Like, when your own death omen is like, yo, chill out. That should be a sign, right? But Toby's just not getting it. Like, she's so far down in this hole that she's, like, her self-worth is, like, at the bottom of the... Like, there's, there's the bottom, and then she just got the shovel, and she keeps going a little farther. <laughs> this book is rough on Toby. This book is very much the turning point. Like, she relapses a little in book six after the events of One Salt Sea, but I think this is really the lowest where Toby really starts to, like, turn it around and realize, oh, hey, I have people I... I can depend on i have people who love me who will face down the wild hunt to bring me back so yeah i think this is really a turning point for toby in dealing with her sense of abandonment and her depression and her loneliness and you know you start to see her assembling her squad of teenagers plus may it was good to see the sort of early seeds of her bonding with quentin but now it's just this cements those even further 
which is which is nice. And I forget how much longer it is before he officially becomes her squire. I think it has to be really soon now. Is that the next book? I don't think it's in the next book. I think it's in book five. Okay. But he, I mean, he's sort of unofficially her squire already by now. I enjoy that. And then we get Raj, finally. Yeah, Raj is great. My dreams, my shipping dreams. Shanae McGuire stomped them firmly <laughs> with this series, which is for later, because it's like a very far off future where Quentin starts dating other Faye. And I'm like, I know the Faye I want him to date, but it's because what? <laughs> Shanae McGuire is like, no, <laughs> fine, fine, it's fine. <laughs> okay, before we go too much farther, I want... So I wrote in our show notes, why does this remind me so much of American Gods? Because at the end of American Gods, there's this really weird end sequence, and it feels like psychedelic. It feels like I'm drugged, trying to read it. And I got the same feeling from this book, and I'm 100% convinced it's because of this Tam Lin business, which I've never read and am super clueless about. And so that was very disconcerting, because the, the book, so obviously it's because of The Wild Hunt, and I don't really know a bunch about it, but the book is like, written in a way that ex- that assumes that you kind of know this story and i'm like well i'm confused because i don't know what this is what's happening <laughs> i will say that to my knowledge american gods is not based on tamlin it's more based in norse mythology basically um odin's sacrifice i i have read american gods it's been has been a really long time the end of american gods i actually really didn't like it i felt like it went off the rails i had really loved that book up until the end this book, and not the very end, but sort of the the part where Toby is trapped in Blind Michael's lands and he's she's being groomed to join the Wild Hunt. So that wasn't quite at the end. It was sort of uh, end game, but not the very end. That held together better for me, but then I am quite familiar with the story of Tamlin. Not so much the original poem, but the Pamela Dean book based on it is one of my all-time favorite books. I've read it dozens of times. I am familiar with the overarching myth, at least the outline of the tale. It does, I think, especially the end, makes much more sense if you know that story, at least the outlines of it, because it follows it pretty faithfully, where Toby is in the role of Tamlin. Sort of the the thumbnail version is that there's uh, this guy, Tamlin, who uh, meets a girl named Janet Carter. Janet is immediately taken with him, but he's like, nope, sorry, the fairy queen has tagged me to be her next sacrifice. Um, so I'm going to go ride with her and then she's going to kill me or take me to fairy or I don't remember exactly what his ultimate fate was supposed to be. And she's basically like, nope, screw that. So she hides in wait for the wild hunt to come by and um, she pulls him off his horse. And then the sequence is very similar. She has to hold on to him as he changes forms a number of times. Um, If she's able to hold on to him the entire time and not die, she frees his soul from fairy and uh, he gets to just live as a mortal uh, happily ever after. And then the fairy queen is like, well, okay, you win, but maybe not forever. It kind of is the tenor of the end of it. And, uh, And then that's where it ends. So that's basically the outline of the Tamlin story as I know it. Die does that met your understanding i mostly know tamlin from what i've picked up from these books okay (laughs) you know the original poem is easy enough to find i think it's an ancient story and a lot of other things are based on it as well the pamela dean one is just the one that i'm by far the most familiar with but it's interesting so there's some implications about this that this is how Maeve was taken out before is through the tamlin scenario and it was janet carter who did it and then, um, so, so you know, it's basically, it's a based on the, the Tamlin epic poem or whatever is based, is a sort of 
becomes a based on true events in this in this world. But it wasn't in at least in the versions of the of the story that I know, the Queen of Fairy doesn't die in it. She just loses a sacrifice. This whole having to pay a tithe to hell thing is going to be a problem for her, but it's not going to mean that she's destroyed. Whereas it seems to have gone down somewhat differently in, in the Toby Toby universe version of it, if it actually did take Maeve down from power. And of course, one thing, Renee, that you probably don't know because you haven't gotten to this book yet is we learn that Janet Carter is Toby's grandmother. Huh. The Janet Carter from the poem, the mortal who saved her lover from the fairy court. So how this happened, I don't think we know. I think we get some of it in Night and Silence. Yeah, because I had forgotten that there was so much of the Tamlin myth in this book. And then suddenly Janet Carter appears in a later story. I'm like, wait a minute. Where did you come from? So it was helpful to go back and read this book and go, oh, okay, this has been a foundational myth of Toby's universe from the very be almost the very beginning. Yeah, and we actually get a sense that Toby is tied with that myth in this book as well. Like not just them recreating Tamlin's ride, but also Toby says, oh, I remember Amadine singing this to me. I don't know why she chose to sing this to me, but she did. As we find out later on, it's because that's the story of how Amadine came to be is through the Tamlin's ride. Now I understand why the hell Toby was transforming into animals. Why she became a snake. Why is she a snake? What is happening? I felt like I was on drugs. Thanks a lot, Shanae McGuire. Giving me homework. I gotta go read this poem. <laughs> gotta go find it and read it so I know what the heck is going on. One thing I also, I just remembered, and it's kind of related, kind of not related. And I don't know if it ever gets brought up again, but there's the idea that someone, that either Amadine or someone from her line was going to stop Blind Michael. I don't remember that. So it's when Toby first meets Blind Michael. I'm here under your sister's guardianship. Nothing else about me matters. Now let me go and let me take my kids. You admit that I'm not yours. His frown deepened for an instant, becoming cold and puzzled. You're not Amadine's daughter, are you? You are. I can smell it on you. Why are you here? She never came, and once a road is set aside, no other feet should claim it. Amadine is one of the biggest mysteries of this whole series, and we've learned a little bit about her, but still not nearly that much. I do remember noting that when Toby first comes in direct face-to-face -face contact with Blind Michael, she talks about, you know, oh, firstborns, they're so terrifying. How can I deal? You know, I'm not equipped to deal with firstborns. And all Toby does is deal with firstborns. <laughs> Your mother is a firstborn. Evening Winter Rose was a firstborn. The Loose Shock, well, you know she's a firstborn and you're, you know, she's your best friend and you're terrified of her. That tracks. But like, there's so many firstborn sneaking around in these books that it's kind of funny to see her say that here before she understands. We meet another firstborn in the Unkindest Tide. Oh, right. Yeah, I think this is the one with the most firstborn. We have Acacia, Blind Michael, and the Lushak. And there's some intimation that Luna is also a firstborn of her new, of the Rose Dryad, the new, sort of the new type of Dryad. I don't think she's a firstborn firstborn because she's not a child of Maeve Titania or Oberon. And that's the signifier. The way I understand it is firstborns can have multiple species because of like weird genetics thing. Sean O'Gar has a post like breaking down like fey weird genetics and I'll try and find it because it's 
like very fascinating but also like you can tell that she comes from like a heptology <laughs> like she specifically mentions the fact that komodo dragons do weird shit when we reproducing <laughs> but because they mention acacia has a like acacia and michael have other children so i got the sense that they are different races and that luna is like she's not the same type of fae as her siblings i didn't realize i was going to be doing like biology work when i read the series like what are those called punnett squares why am i back here why am i back here in this class this is, this is too much with the little peas and the big peas and the yellow peas and the shriveled peas yeah oh boy i do think that if you don't know temlin if you don't know anything about it if you haven't picked anything up from culture which apparently i just haven't uh, you probably should. Tamlin is one of my very favorite books, but I read it in college and it's a book that's set in college and it was a college that felt very much like my college. I think that's part of the reason I bonded to it. Also, if you're talking about an author giving you homework, there are so many literary references in this book because it's a book, you know, sort of set among English and classics majors and they talk about English and classics stuff all the time. So if you don't want a book that gives you homework, I don't recommend this one. <laughs> Surely somebody has done like an annotated copy. I looked for that and I didn't find one and I actually thought about creating it myself, but I didn't get very far because there was so much. But maybe there is now. That was several years ago that I looked. Maybe there's a Pamela Dean's Tamlin wiki now that has all of the hundreds of literary allusions. Well, on an easier topic than extremely old epic poems that are apparently rooted in everything, I need some help. Spike, this Rose Goblin, Spike. How does this work? What is happening? I need a diagram, a photo. Spike is sharp, but also they pet him. What is happening? I don't understand. I always picture Spike as a cat, a thorny kitty. And like if you pet it the right way, it's like petting a shark where it won't hurt you. I picture a hedgehog. A very angry hedgehog. Spike is angry a lot. An angry hedgehog with thorns. But again, I think I think like Dai says, maybe if you pet them one direction, you're okay. I picture Spike as a sort of a hedgehog covered in little tiny roses. Is there fan art out there? Listen, if anybody's listening and you've seen some Spike fan art, I need it. I need your I need your interpretation or this artist's interpretation. Uh, help me out because I'm having a lot. Like I had a lot of trouble. I'm just like, is this thing just hopping around everybody? And is everybody just bleeding constantly from this thorny pet? Because I am a very visual reader. Like I picture stuff in my head. So this was just like... Spike is crawling around on Toby's shoulders and climbing into people's laps. And I'm like, it's time to go to a hospital. <laughs> like, what's happening? You're all like, how is this working? I just put the wiki page that has some fan art. I can't believe that Renee turned this side pet character into a whole discussion topic. But I was just having a lot of visual confusion during this book. Spikes in almost every book. So it's very important. Even though we do have here this wiki page, I would still love to see listeners' favorite Spike fan art or their own interpretations of Spike. I think that'd be wonderful. Well, I mean, we've exhausted every other avenue and we haven't talked about the most important part of the series so far. We haven't touched on it yet, but it's in KJ's section. This is where I sort of fall in line with you guys and, and accept that uh, Sianna McGuire really knew, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, that T-Bolt was the real love interest. Not so much from Toby's side, but the things that T-Bolt says to her, how quickly he comes to her rescue, but also just at the very, you know, the last thing he says to her is that I'm not going to tell you what I'm thinking because it's not time for you to know yet. I mean... I don't know how that's not 
I'm secretly in love with you. I mean, okay, maybe it could be something else, but I see no evidence for it being anything else. So not that I was ever anti Toby T. Vault, but before I was on that, well, you know, maybe she really didn't know what she was doing. Maybe she really did intend Connor to be the endgame ship. But I really wonder if it wasn't meant to be I'm secretly in love with you, what the thought process was between behind what he was not saying there. But also Toby realizes it's happening, but she's very depressed. She's at she's at the bottom. So like at the end of the book where they are they're taking her home from the ride, like she's between Connor and Tibble on the seats and she's like, Oh, they're like glaring over my head or whatever. Like she sees it happening, but she is so depressed that it just like doesn't register or she just can't care about it. I got the sense that she just has so much, like she just had this really traumatic experience and she doesn't have the spoons to deal with it. And so it's very much that meme of, I do not see it. I do not acknowledge it. Yeah. Sean McGuire had done a Twitter thread talking about all the different books when the Toby series got nominated for Best Hugos. And apparently it isn't this book. It's the next book where she says, I realized I had been wrong about who Toby's long-term love interest is going to be. I don't disbelieve her. I'm sure that she really didn't know what was going on. But yet, what did she think was going on? That is my big question. Because if it wasn't this, it has to have been something else. Yeah, I have no idea what she was originally doing with Toby and Tibble. It feels wrong because this book is like laced with depression and anxiety. But also like it also manages to be like slightly horny on Connor's part. He's like flouting this relationship Sure, your wife is uh, insane and sadistic, but maybe if you know that your wife doesn't like a person and your wife is insane and sadistic, maybe you shouldn't take your ex-girlfriend out for breakfast. Just an idea. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. Like how Connor behaves with this is why I why I didn't like him as a love interest and why I didn't necessarily like him a whole lot as a character because it felt very selfish in a way that disregarded boundaries that Toby was trying to set up. And he's like, oh, I need a friend. But it's like, it's hard to see that when you're sneak. I don't know. I just I have a lot of feelings about how Connor comes off and not all of them are positive. He seems like he's in a very traumatized place because obviously recently this is not a kind person. So he seems like no, not only is he like in a traumatized place, Toby's not doing well either. Obviously there's no excuse for violating boundaries, but also like he's in a place where maybe he just doesn't even see the boundaries because he's so desperate. So I'm like kind of sympathetic to him, but also like you're putting somebody you say you care about in harm's way because Raceline is not nice. <laughs> She is dangerous and you are like setting Toby up to be the target of her fury. I mean, sure. Yeah, you're having a rough time. But why would you like think it through and make that determination? Like, yeah, let's get breakfast. Let me hang out with you a whole bunch. I don't know. I just uh, his decisions, buddy, buddy. No, I only have sort of a more meta commentary thought, which is why is a world that is populated with immortals so hung up on monogamy? Even serial monogamy. It does not make sense to me. I think it's land stuff. Inheritance things. Inheritance. I think that's the main one. Because you see, and we're flash forwarding to book 14, when someone divorces, the children have to choose what side of the family they'll belong to. So I think that's part of it is that they don't want any questions about who the children are, because then it gets even more complicated. Yeah, it seems like there are other ways to deal with that, though. 
how many space bees are we going to give this book? I would say four space bees. I'm kind of waffling between four and four and a half, four and a jar of honey. Just because I, I sort of feel like if I'm already escalating into the higher echelons, where do I have to go? So yeah, I think I'll settle it out of four. I'm pretty much at 3.5 space bee jar of honey. And that's mostly because I spent a lot of this book confused because I didn't have a lot of the context that I needed for it. Some of the reading process was just like a kind of a slog. And then also I felt like I was high during the climactic hunt ride scene. I just felt like, am I having an episode? Like, it was pretty late at night when I was reading it. I was like, am I having an episode? Like, am I depersonalizing? No, the book is just weird. <laughs> so that's that's why, okay, I, I will take that as my sort of legit reason to round it to four instead of four and a half, because it does depend so much on context. And it's context that I happen to have. So as a reader, it was not, it didn't diminish my experience, but... Shannon McGuire won't be upset at a 3.5 because she has like 900 Hugo nominations or whatever for the series now. Okay, Space Bees, if you have not yet started the October Day series, uh, you can come along with us. I would highly recommend just reading the whole series because we're going to spoil all of it like at every juncture. But it's fun. It's a fun series. And I hope that you will come along and read with us and enjoy some uh, fairy shenanigans. KJ, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Dreamwith and Archive of Our Own as Almus. You can find me on Twitter as I am KJ. And you can find me on Lady Business, where I am a contributing editor. Dana! Uh, you can find me on Twitter and YouTube at Bookish Die. This episode was made possible by our very generous patrons. They are the true stars of every single episode of Finger Happy Hour. Our production is by me. Hello, I am production. Uh, our music is by Cheeky Beats and Box Cat Games. Our art is by Ira, and our transcripts are by International Treasure Susan, who I aggressively compliment in outros because she'll have to listen to it to transcribe it, and she can't escape my immense fondness and respect. You can read her transcripts at fingerhappyhour.com. Thanks again to my guests, Diana and KJ. And thanks to you out there for listening to Finger Happy Hour. See you next episode. Cat admire. Hi, Leia. Look at that belly. Kitty. What was I saying before I got distracted by the cat? <laughs>